Hey guys, what's up? This is Carl. I'm here with the Orthodox Squad and welcome to another episode of the Orthodox Squad podcast. Today we've got a special guest. It's uh, Trey from Telusbound. Trey, could you start by maybe introducing yourself? Um, yeah. Uh, hi. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, as you said, uh, I have a YouTube channel called Telusbound. And uh, basically, I started off um, just making philosophy videos. I already converted to orthodoxy at that time, but I was a catechumen, so I didn't want to make videos uh, about orthodoxy yet. But um, last year, so last Pascha, I was baptized, and around that time, I started making more explicitly theological videos. So uh, long story short, my project really is to um, baptize philosophy, um, bring philosophy into dialogue with theology and show how certain limitations of philosophy are overcome by theology. Because um, a, a lot of the apostasy we see, especially in the West, um, it didn't really begin with just your average person. It actually began with the philosophers. And it was the, it was these uh, philosophies and philosophical ideas that became normalized in the culture that eventually led to um, the mass apostasy that we that we see today. So the really the purpose of Telos Bound in general, we have uh, people sort of in our group who um, talk about politics, uh, sort of from an orthodox, uh, a Christian perspective. We have people who talk about, um, we even have some people who are interested in like language and stuff. But um, me personally, I'm more into the philosophy side of it. So on my channel, you can find you can find a lot of videos on some are just like basic theology stuff, but a lot of them are sort of analyzing certain philosophers, mostly modern philosophers, just because I'm not um, as well read on like the ancient Greeks um, as I should be. But um, yeah, so really uh, philosophy and theology and explicitly not just sort of like some watered down Christianity, but orthodoxy, um, orthodoxy and philosophy. That's the type of stuff that you'll see on my channel. And that's basically what I do. Awesome. Well, I think I'm just going to start by throwing in a quote there. I think St. Athanasius the Great actually said that philosophy is theology's handmaiden. And what we're seeing a lot of the time in universities and places like that is they've kept the philosophy, but they've thrown out the theology, um, which in my opinion is like you've got the, the father and you've got the, you've got the big figure and you've got the small figure. You're keeping the small figure, but you're throwing out the more important one. So where do you think that philosophy would slot in to theology now that we've acknowledged that they both kind of go hand in hand? Where would philosophy start to come in when you're debating someone or talking with someone? Right. Yeah, I think this is a crucial question. Um, and firstly, um, that quote, handmaiden of theology, actually goes back to, to my knowledge, it goes back to Philo, uh, the early Jewish writer. Um, post Christ. And um, he does this analysis of like some crazy biblical typology, like mo modern, uh, cr even Christians would look at that and be like, what? I, I don't see this. But he, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, he analyzed the story of Abraham and Sarah and her handmaiden and was like making the connection between how her handmaiden was a symbol of um, pagan philosophy. Um, and then uh, Sarah stood for theology, and I, I don't want to butcher it, but that type of typology is what you saw back in the in the ancient world that began with Philo and um, Clement of Rome, a uh, early uh, Christian uh, writer and philosopher. He took that analogy and ran with it, 
um, and he sort of he agreed with the typology. It was almost like unquestioned for them. Um, that's sort of what we would call crazy biblical analysis and stuff. Um, but they just took it for granted. So uh, actually, Clement of Rome is the one who really popularized that idea of the handmaiden of um, of theology. And really, the way I see it is that, and I think you can see this in sort of modern philosophy as well, is with philosophy, when you try to account for all of reality using philosophy or using rationality, you always run into certain limitations. So one example would be Immanuel Kant and his antinomies, which are basically paradoxes and contradictions. And he has this really famous book called The Critique of Pure Reason. And he's critiquing reason because he's trying to show that rationality or reason it can't actually answer the fundamental questions. So Immanuel Kant basically said, oh, well, we just have to sort of have faith in, in, in God to solve all of these antinomies. We have to believe that in the thing itself, because he makes that distinction between the things you can know and the thing itself that we're always can never know. Um, he says that uh, we just reach rationality reaches these certain limitations that we just can't overcome. And I would be willing to accept that. I think that pure philosophy, pure rationality does reach certain limitations that you just can't overcome without theology, without faith. Um, Demetrius Staniloy in The Experience of God, Volume 1, he talks about how um, um, St. Gregory uh, the Theologian, one of the Cappadocians, he used um, what we would call the teleological argument um, as an as a proof for God, he said that, um, well, look at the world around you. Doesn't it look designed and all this stuff? But he doesn't just stop there. Um, he says, well, after that, um, uh, St. Gregory says, well, this is just like sort of like these are cool. These are like these facts, philosophical proofs for God. But what is more fundamental for us is apophatic knowledge of God, which is the experience of God as a person. And the only way you can have that sort of knowledge is, is through faith. So when I when I uh, look at the that phrase, um, philosophy is a handmaiden of theology, what I think is that philosophy can do certain things, it can analyze the world, but it can't get the big picture. And then that's why you run into all of these contradictions. And modern philosophy is obsessed with contradictions and paradoxes. And I'm okay with that. I just want to say, well, we can't just leave these contradictions unsolved. Um, so what it means for philosophy to be the handmaiden of theology is that it can help sort of push us towards God. And like, yeah, the the um, creation reveals the glory of God. That's 100% true. And we can sort of have, we can make sort of, if you want to call it natural theology type of arguments for God, but these are always inherently limited. And in order to have the true full picture, the true understanding of what the world is, because what the world is, is the creation. It's created by God. You can't understand without God. And you can't just get to God through um, pure rationality because God isn't a logical formula. God is a person. So um, philosophy can help um, give us confidence in our faith. Sure, it can help in our uh, apologetics. We can use it in, for evangelism and all this stuff. We can write philosophical treaties. But fundamentally, philosophy is limited. And that's why it has to be in service of and it has to point outwards, sort of like um, Maximus the Confessor talks about like how uh, humans are meant to have this um, ecstasis beyond ourselves, right? This this um, um, transcendence of ourself. I think philosophy and, and towards God, philosophy is meant to because it can't capture the totality of of 
what reality actually is. It has to humble itself and it has to accept its role as a handmaiden that can get to true things, but ultimately needs to point people to to God and ultimately to faith. So you have rationality and faith. They're not in contradiction. Actually, um, I did this recent video called um, Towards a Communal Ontology. And communal ontology is sort of, I'm borrowing the term from theologians like um, Nicolas Ludovicos with his uh, Eucharistic ontology and uh, John Zazula's with being as communion. Um, we want to understand reality as fundamentally communal. That is, reality can't be understood with as like a self-contained thing because it's always in connection with God. So I, I did this video and what I tried to show is that philosophy itself if you try to find certainty, you never can with philosophy. You, you're always led to relative truths. You're led to uncertainties. And the this points to the inherent limitation of philosophy and rationality. And because it's limited, it needs to be dependent upon theology, which true theology, which is, as the church fathers say, the experience of God isn't limited because it allows us uh, to have communion with the personal God who can give us everything, including absolute certainty or absolute assurance in his um, in his truth. And the last thing I'll say, actually, the Hebrews, um, the Hebrew understanding of truth, Pavel Florensky in his book, Pillar and Ground of the Truth, in the first chapter, he does an analysis of the different etymologies of the word truth. And for the Hebrews, truth meant um it was inherently connected to this idea of the faithfulness of God. It was a covenantal idea. What truth fundamentally is, is the truth that God is absolutely faithful. And then for the um, Latins, it was a legalistic idea. He traced it back to like the sort of Roman um, jurid uh, juridical um, uh, notion. And um, with the Greeks, it was about what preserves over time. And with Russians, it was truth was connected with life and with dynamic existence. I think all of these are true, but I think the Hebrews, because they uh, obviously uh, um, they had the Mosaic Covenant, uh, they had the most, um, I think, um, like tr true understanding of truth, which is the faithfulness of God, the um, and and the um, the the loving faithfulness of God. Yeah. So what I find when I'm reading it is like Kant's philosophy does not delve deeply into eschatological considerations, but orthodox um, theology places significant emphasis on the eschaton, so the final fulfillment of God's plan for creation. Mm -hmm. I think Kant's idea of an ethical commonwealth and the highest concept of good and the orthodox understanding of the eschatological kingdom do have some kind of parallel. Um, but where do you find when you're looking at this modern philosophy that there's a limit and you can't go past that limit because it's limited by what the person's beliefs are? What do you find in that regard? Um, well, firstly, about uh, eschatology, I think that's really true. And I think that a true ontology or true metaphysics is ultimately an eschatological thing, because when we're doing metaphysics, we're trying to figure out what is being what is the what is the meaning of existence what is existence well ultimately we believe as as orthodox christians that yes we do exist but there's a certain sense in which we are less than the fullness of existence because the fullness of existence only becomes revealed and truly um, occurs in the eschaton when god is fully united to creation because it's a fundamental and this is what modern theologians like not just modern but um 
um, especially modern uh, theologians like John Zazulas and uh, Ludovicos, as I mentioned, uh, Dimitri Sanilo is really good on this. Um, the meaning of reality, what existence fundamentally is, well, it's creation. And by creation, that creation always implies a creator. So with um, eschatology, um, we're talking about the final union of creation and, and creator. And this is the purpose of reality. This is what reality fundamentally is, is this being brought out of nothingness by God. It's this link and relationship we have with God. So I think that ultimately a true ontology ultimately is an eschatology because for us, we have all these philosophers and to answer your second question about the certain limitations of philosophy, I think fundamentally what secular philosophy and really non-Orthodox philosophy to lesser degrees, it gets worse and worse as as we uh, what Nietzsche calls the death of God as we get deeper and deeper into this um into the secularism, um, you try to understand reality as a self-contained whole, as something like, sort of like the Tower of Babel, instead of um, instead of um, having this link, this humility, right? Like philosophy is meant to be the handmaiden of theology. Instead, philosophy tries to encapture everything and close everything within itself. I think the quintessential, uh, quintessential example of this is Hegel and his philosophical system. He thinks you can go from the most basic concept which is pure being and then you get to absolute knowing and then you have the subject who has absolute knowing he's contained all of reality in himself in his own mind but for us this is impossible and this leads to certain impossibilities and certain contradictions that are inherent to um inherent to philosophy and i, I think like the fundamental one is just the fact that you can always doubt everything really you can always as from a purely philosophical standpoint for example my experience um how do i know this isn't just an illusion i mean i i don't think there's really a good philosophical answer to this and insofar as there is one it usually has some sort of it's depending on a theological notion that it's not really um necessarily um recognizing but these sort of limitations that you get with philosophy and then you have modern philosophers like Slavoj Žižek who's the big, biggest example who's just the philosopher of contradiction who just affirms contradiction he says that yes reality is contradictory at the heart of everything is just this contradiction and it, his idea is quite I actually what used to be a Žižekian and it brought me to orthodoxy because I think he kind of discovers the fall unintentionally because he says that at the heart of the human being is this void, this self-relating mm -hmm. void that can't have communion. He doesn't use that term, but can't relate to anyone else because we're just this isolated, self-divided, contradictory being. And then when I started looking into Christianity, I'm like, oh, well, we kind of say that, but we believe there's a solution to the contradiction, right? There's a way out of this and it's um, theosis. So that actually, uh, I actually was brought to Christianity through reading Zizek and sort of becoming dissatisfied with his, with his takes. But um, so those are the sort of, like this type of stuff, like the philosopher of contradiction, like all this stuff. I think the fact that we've got someone like the philosopher of contradiction, who's willing to just say, um, yeah, reality is contradictory, obviously absurd. But the fact that we have this guy, we no longer have a guy like Descartes who will try and build this philosophical system and, um, and have absolute certainty based on the self. Um, based purely on the self, not based on God, but based on the self. And I think this is sort of a manifestation of this logic of of pride or of, of self-reference where trying to contain reality in yourself, build upwards from the foundational truth of the self, like the Tower of Babel, as I said, like building up towards God instead of having recognizing that 
we can never build up, but we have to receive the revelation. And then we can, from that point, build our system. Um, but yeah, the fact that we have this philosophy, like it begins with postmodernism, really, where they start to affirm contradictions and stuff. To me, this just points to um, just maybe just historically speaking, I think we're getting to a point where orthodoxy will really begin with the internet and stuff. We will begin to show how maybe Western Christianity has certain limitations. And that's definitely why we saw this, um, this, um, death of God to use Nietzsche's term. But, um, uh, I think orthodoxy, now that we can dialogue with them, we have solutions to these problems. Like we don't have to say that, oh no, the human being doesn't have contradictions. No, we do, but they're the result of sin, the, the, the result of the fall. And then we can have this holistic worldview that can account for everything and sort of, um, account for all these contradictions in a way that isn't just discounting them as if they have no meaning at all, but also not just staying at that level, which is what philosophy right now, especially is doing, especially in the wake of uh, postmodernism. I think one of the mm -hmm. biggest roots of that is, um, like you said, it's uh, modern philosophers who throw uh, away from the theology completely. There is this, I think the biggest root of it is uh, nihilism. That they have deep Dostoevsky. down. Dostoevsky touches on that quite a bit. I have, yeah. This is directed at the squad. Have you guys read Dostoevsky at all? Any of you guys? Yes. Yes. Sky, Mary. Sorry, what? Dostoevsky. Have you read Dostoevsky? I couldn't hear you. Sorry. I actually have Crime and Punishment <laughs> on my bookshelf. Oh, oh, I have not read those books. I, I've been meaning to, though. No, I yeah. never said I read um, it. I said I have it. But that's all I have to say. <laughs> you can tie Lopez the book always, Sky, you know, like just read the, the, the back and like the first few pages. I'll spark note it. You should uh, put some books behind you sometimes when we record. Makes you look sophisticated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mary already has the bookshelf and the glasses, so she looks more sophisticated. <laughs> um but getting, what, I find, nerd what I find a lot of the roof. Roof. you go Mary you were saying I was something? just I was I was just saying nerd levels are through the roof <laughs> <laughs> definitely well, we've got three <laughs> years, <so. laughs> um my question is speaking of nerd levels philosophy has a very technical terminology a very specific way of well it has its own jargon right have a way of speaking uh just for our viewers there's a whole way of thinking that comes with philosophy in general. For example, they have sound arguments, valid arguments. And usually in our day-to-day, -day, when we're arguing with someone, we don't consider these kinds of paradigms. Where if you go to a philosopher and you make whatever argument you make, they're actually not sound. So they could you just, on a simple level of trait, explain what makes an argument sound in philosophy and in logic in general? Um, right. Before we um, go to that, yeah. I think you wanted to say something about Dostoevsky, but you forgot it. That that was, was that me? Was that me? Dostoevsky. I think he's talking to you. Yeah. No, no, you you. No, no, it was you, you. wanted to say something about <laughs> Dostoevsky. I was just saying that he delves into nihilism, and uh, we're going to come back to that. So let's start All with right. this one, and I'll come back to Dostoevsky. Okay. So Thank I just you. wanted to ask if somebody has read a book. <laughs> Or not from us. I was going to friends. build that up to something, but let's sneaky, first start sneaky. with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so okay, what makes an argument sound? Um, <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Uh, so this is more like on the analytical side of stuff where we're dealing with like logic. And so if I'm recalling correctly, um, I should just preface this by saying I don't like analytic philosophy, math, logic, all this stuff. It just doesn't, it can't compute in my brain. Um, so I like more of this continental type of stuff in literature. Like I like this, these type of things, but if I'm recalling correctly, and I'm sure someone else here knows that can correct me if I'm saying it wrong. Um, a sound argument is when, um, both of the premises in an argument are true and the conclusion is consistent with the premises. And then a, yes. a valid argument is when I think that it, the, conclusion follows from the premises but the premises aren't necessarily right or wrong am i am i correct there yeah so a valid argument is one that basically in simple terms one that logically flows from the premises and mm -hmm. to make a sound argument you need both validity and a true premises right. that's what makes yeah. the argument sound yeah yeah um but just to chip in most people when they debate things in modern times they don't necessarily consider those terms like most of the times now people are fixated on empirism so much that they are looking for empirical proof within your arguments mm -hmm. and or social proof for your arguments. So like modern philosophy is yet more blurry, especially if you look at like Slavoj Žižek debates, they are more political in nature than anything else, really. That's like, you know, how they usually pan out, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, know. there's no Aristotle's today. I would say definitely, definitely. There's none left. <laughs> and the people who pretend like this French dude and Toven, I mean, yeah, that's definitely not. That's again like more just lip service, and then you know, feel good political arguments that are being made most of the time, really, to to appeal mm -hmm. to a certain group of people who who then consume his books. So definitely, I, I feel like. Go ahead, sorry. Well, a lot of the time, uh, arguments nowadays, forget online, it's its own thing. And online is just insulting people for no reason. That's its own issue. But when you're arguing with someone, what you see often on television or wherever it is, is they appeal to, they commit so many fallacies, like logical fallacies. They appeal to your emotions a lot. That's all well and good when you're giving someone a speech. But logically, when you're arguing for something theologically or philosophy, that doesn't have a place. That's not how you make an yep. argument or structure one. And that's, I find, been lost with uh, most people that aren't are related to the to the philosophical, like when they're not thinking in that mindset, They that's completely been lost on them. So when they approach someone, they want to, because, okay, let me go back a bit. Just restructure my what I'm saying. Philosophy is not taught as well as it used to be. If you mm -hmm. went to a university before, you'd receive a philosophical education as a baseline. Now, it's like, it's complete. I don't know if you know about the liberal arts and science or arts in general, those degrees. They still do it. They still have philosophy. And when I started uni, I did liberal arts as my, my first year. And I find that it helped me so much structure all of my arguments later on. When I moved to engineering after that, they had no focus on it. So I think if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be able to understand or kind of engage with people as I well as I could have if I did not do it, if that makes any sense. Now, well, well, where yeah. I'm going with this is I wanted to ask you, uh, do you think that philosophy is something that should be taught in general in schools and, and whatever system people are getting educated in? 
Um, yeah, I do, but it's more so like the sort of logic and like how to think. I that's what I think is the most important. Um, and obviously, like actually reading the text, like reading Plato, Aristotle, I think that's important as well. And and we live in the modern times. I mean, if you're going to pursue um, a career, I don't know what career you're going to pursue, but if you're going to try and get a degree in philosophy and um, and do whatever, I don't know what you're going to do with that. But um, yeah, I guess you, you should read the modern uh, uh, philosophers and stuff as well. Um, but like like as you're saying academia is so um like i i'm not i graduated high school uh last year and i started telos band because i was like i'm not going i'm not going to any school around here at least cuz i know what they teach i don't want to learn about you know gender theory critical race theory this is the type of stuff that you'll you'll learn in philosophy class i'm sure before you learn probably the laws of logic you know like this is the type of stuff they're pushing um so should your average person read philosophy or learn about philosophy? I think so. And um, like in, especially like in Byzantium and in the Western um, sort of university systems as well in the middle ages, philosophy was everything and philosophy, but philosophy referred to like literally almost everything like science, like natural science was considered a form of philosophy and um, rhetoric, I, I think was considered a form of philosophy, but um, just in terms of like how to think, um, I do think this should be taught. And I think that um, Orthodox Christians as well should, um, um, especially if you're going to be in the apologetic, you know, online sphere debating people, you should know um, how to tell a valid argument or a sound argument from um, a, a, a false argument. And um, a lot of people just, yeah, a lot of people just um, don't get that now. And I think a lot of it has to do with like, ideology and um the type of stuff that we see in the universe in academia being pushed now um which is a big problem but yeah to answer your question i do think people should um learn philosophy they just shouldn't get lost in it especially modern philosophy i, I don't think unless you have a specific reason to read derrida you shouldn't be i don't think you should be reading derrida like unless you have a lot of time because um you're going to get a lot of nonsense and maybe some truth here. And especially if you're not equipped with sort of uh, the orth orthodox mindset, um, it can be it can be dangerous and it can be confusing and um, it can be depressing because a lot of these guys are super depressing. Like, as you're saying, like nihilism, this is a big thing. It's almost like an unquestioned presupposition now that uh, of nihilism and atheism. I remember uh, Zizek um, did a um, a debate and he was talking about like they use theological ideas to refer to philosophical ideas so they'll talk about the death of christ and for zizek he doesn't believe that christ was god i don't even know if he believes he was like he definitely doesn't believe the gospels are true he's an, he's an atheist right so like he talks about the death of god as like a philosophical concept which, which for him is like the point where um um reality is revealed to be fundamentally meaningless where reality is revealed to be inherently there is no solution to the problem because even god himself has died even he has succumbed to death um and obviously for us i mean uh yeah but he, there is a resurrection and i i think you can sort of see a trajectory of uh from west western theology down to zizek as you get more of an emphasis on the crucifixion and stuff but that's a tangent but um like Zizek will like talk about all this stuff and then just like casually just be like, but obviously I'm an atheist or obviously like I don't believe in this. So it's like an unquestioned presupposition of atheism and secularism, which because it's unquestioned, like 
if you're a Christian going into it, you're not going to read the preface and be like, oh, by the way, I'm an atheist. I don't believe, I believe in all, I believe in evolution and all this stuff. These are all taken for granted and they can, they can really, um, if these are the ideas, if the ideas are talking about fit at all within the paradigm they're working within, which is atheism, you can sort of get sucked into that paradigm and that way of thinking and sort of uh, get lost in it. So you have to be careful with philosophy for sure. And you got to make sure that you're prioritizing, like reading the Bible, reading um, whatever, like that's more beneficial to your spiritual health. And um, that's just my personal advice, but, but yeah. So what I find is that lots of the education system has thrown out the idea of natural law I'm just going to skim over the topic. They basically, that posits that there's an objective moral order. There's rules that you can observe in the world around us that are just there, independent of what we or society deems is appropriate or exists. So it will continue to function in such a manner, whether we decide that it functions in that matter or not. What they teach is subjective morality. And that's what you see pushed. In my first year, that was to be embedded into us that there's subjective morality morality is not subjective uh, objective it's subjective and that's my issue with the whole system that, that's where i think all the other stuff that gets pushed like gender ideology and whatever it is mm -hmm. it all stems from subjective mor morality because mm -hmm. when you throw out this idea that there is a natural order of things and by the way this is what i find is another issue with people that argue for natural law they argue for natural law without god but it doesn't make sense to have an objective morality at the end of the day you, like, without having some kind of supreme being that puts these things in order. That's what we argue theologically philosophy comes from. Now, natural law posits that, but you have to remember that it stems from God when you argue natural law, because then you end up in this whole kind of mess. Why is there a natural law? And it gets really kind of... <laughs> best is with your brain the way they say it and the way they argue so natural law comes from god there is an objective morality that comes from this natural law and this natural law is something that we can observe in the world around us with subjective morality you're arguing that every single culture has its own law for example and they will teach this cultural relativism they will say like in hawaii there's nothing wrong with, with eating cannibalism why for the hawaiians at least they've made a societal law that when a tribe defeats another tribal, then they will maybe eat the other one. That's what subjective morality leads to at the end of the day. Well, Enough individuals. True. Not, not really true. There is no culture that sides on cannibalism because if you do practice cannibalism, you become very sick biologically. So like those cultures that have rituals, cannibalistic rituals, they are very few and far between. Like, yeah, so just- But does it become societally, here's my, what I, my question is, does it become appropriate for you to, eat people if your society practices it stranger well does it become morally appropriate for you that that's like it's a difficult question to answer because obviously from a christian point of view it is not morally appropriate for you to eat anybody right it's yes large sin. so that that's what we're saying with objectives we're saying that that um it doesn't depend on what society you live in or what time period you come from morality never changes that's but then you could ask the question if the person was not knowing and did that uh, out of like pure ignorance, is that sin still a sin? And as Christians, we believe it is. 
but I'm not educated, and this is like a lack of knowledge on my part. How does sin differentiate between you knowing that you're committing a sin or you being able to realize that or not? I'm very glad you brought that up. So it doesn't be okay. So obviously, I don't know, I think it's in the book of Romans, it says the blasphemy of a pagan is nothing, but the blasphemy of a righteous believer is the world. So knowing does not change the fact though that it's still blasphemy. It may it can lessen culpability. It doesn't change that morally speaking, this is right and this is wrong. And with subjective morality, they play on exactly what you said to convince people that there is some kind of subjective morality. That morality depends on, like you can't blame this person because they don't know this is wrong. But in Australia, for example, we have a legal system, civil law. If you break the civil law, you've broken the law, whether you knew that was the law or not. Same thing with objective morality. And why I mentioned Dostoevsky to come back, segue back to our old topic is because what I find with the Eastern um, writers like Dostoevsky is they don't focus so much just on the logics of things like analytical philosophy. Like Che was saying, like Kant, for example, hyperlogical, hyper-analytical in the way that he speaks. Uh, but you get these Eastern philosophers and there's some aspect of spirituality F. Uh, I don't know, it's... It gets you to think in a way that I don't find so much when I read Kant. When I'm reading Kant or Hume, David Hume, philosophers from that period, I just get very, I feel like I'm thinking with my brain and it's here. But when I'm reading someone like Dostoevsky, there's something else there. What did do you find that yourself, Trey, when you're reading some something that's from an Eastern philosopher in general? Or would you disagree with that? Oh, no, I, I agree with that. Yeah, like Kant is sort of, yeah, he's an example of sort of this hyper rationalism that you get with the West. And it's not edifying at all. You know, it's it's kind of boring. Um, But yeah, like, uh, like, even just reading St. Paul and his epistles, like, if you if you come at it with like, if you come at it like thinking like what is like, even from a philosophical perspective, like, what is he saying? What are the concepts he's using? You can get a lot of philosophical um, um, knowledge and there's a lot of philosophical philosophical value in Paul that I just, but I just don't think you can see it if you're stuck within rationality. That is, you haven't sort of understood that rationality is limited and that this actually opens up higher understanding because like by ration, pure rationality, something like, honestly, like something like the Trinity and the incarnation, it, it leads to certain it's like how do, how do these two things work um but i think like what you what we see with uh, like as you're saying to bring it back to like this idea of subjective morality and subjectivism um i think like even if you're um even if there's like some debate over your point about cannibalism it's true that once you sort of center reality in the subject in yourself which begins really with descartes right his whole philosophical system is based on the self and the certainty of the self you ultimately get a point where because the self when you understand the self as a self-contained thing that isn't always in communion with the world and communion with others and communion with god you literally get a fracturing a deconstruction of reality to the point where you have nietzsche who's if you could have a name for his philosophical system it would be subjectivism or perspectivism where he says that all truth is just my perspective that competes with yours. And we're in literally like, this isn't, this isn't just a claim about um, 
epistemology. This is a this is um, an ontological statement. He's saying that reality itself is this conflict of forces, and he'll say that like especially in his uh, notebooks, he talks about like the everything is the will to power. An atom, one atom uh, wants to um, um, exert force over the other atom, and all this stuff. Now we know from modern science this is absolutely wrong. No, like reality actually is communal. Like uh, things exist because they're in communion with each other. And like, for example, even myself, yes, I am a distinct person, but who I am cannot be abstracted, like using rationality. You can't just take me and put me in a vacuum and just say, this is who you are and who you are is everything like right here, because what I became and how I grew as a person cannot be disconnected um, with my relationships with other people. And of course, ultimately with God, uh, with God himself. And so with ethics, Ethics, I think, um, especially in an orthodox context, you get this in um, St. Maximus um, really strongly, is that ethics is really downstream from ontology. I think ethics is just a logical um, under, um, a logical sort of result of our understanding of what it actually means to exist. Because for us, our, like, like Christ says that your the two commandments, like all the commandments can be boiled down to um, love God above all, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And then let's just think about who we are fundamentally. Like, what are we? What is our being? Well, we are created by God and we're in communion with others. Like to exist is to exist in a world with others. So I think that um, you can see how ethics is related to ontology because it's not just an arbitrary thing. Like God just decided, oh, we have to love him. No, it's that to exist and to receive the fullness of existence is to be united to him ontologically. So that's why our sort of ethical um, injunction is to love God and to love others because love is, as as um, St. John says, uh, God is love, right? So like existence is love. So to act ethically is just to act like, as Maximus will say, it's to act according to your telos. It's to act as you are according to nature, right? And our nature is meant to be, we are meant to be deified and we are meant to be united with God. That's why sin, um, sin, while it is like ethical, it's like a, it, it's wrong to do, objectively wrong. Um, it's objectively wrong um, because it's literally a, a, it's a sin against nature in the precise sense that it's like, if our if my purpose of existence is to be united with God and sin divides me from God, well, that's why that's why for us it's wrong. It's because it's it's ontological, and I think that's I think that's really important. And you sort of lose that in in Western Christianity. I think you you lose, especially in Calvinism. Like like if you read um, mm -hmm. the Reformed guys, they say that no, the fall wasn't ontological. It was purely a ethical thing and then god because he is just he had to punish adam and eve we, we don't really believe that no it's like there is an ethical component but it's because to god is infinite right i got this from sarah from hamilton god is infinite um to move even slightly away from infinity anything less than infinity is infinitely less than infinite so we return to nothingness by definition and that's death so yeah Sorry for the tangent. Uh, no, that, <laughs> no, that was good. That was, that was awesome. Uh, a lot of the stuff, you went to a lot of stuff, so to kind of to multiple uh, points. <laughs> Other <laughs> words, my brain, they don't function at this late in the night. Yeah, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> I'm scrambling for words. Uh, but a lot of stuff that you mentioned, I saw in a very good video by Father Peter Hears where he actually went through philosophy and orthodoxy. 
And what I really like when you went through that video was uh, one point that you mentioned with, uh, for example, the letters of our saints. He said, for example, the church fathers, they used uh, philosophical language, but they weren't philosophers, how some modern historians claim, because they were... Uh, they were the church fathers, they were theologians, and they were telling us the truth and that there is only way to the eternal kingdom, and that is through Christ. So for the people who haven't watched the video, I, I, I really recommend that video. It's a short one, but he goes through some points, and Father Peter here always explains them very nice. The yeah, whole yeah I know a video. It's a good video. The whole concept of theosis and the news is something that's missing from, I find, mm. Western philosophy. Mm. And it's very important when you understand that. This one I know St. Athanasius said that, what is it? Man became God so that, no, sorry, God became man so that man could become God. That is Athanasius, right? Mm. So no correction yep. needed. Um, that's the correct quote. And that's what theosis is, that you're not becoming God with a capital G. There's only one God, but you're becoming a like God. So you're partaking in the divine nature through the grace of the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. That's what what this notion is missing, because in Western theology, you're there to observe the divine beauty, the divine I don't, it has a name, some fancy name. You're There's a lot of sophistry. You're there to observe the divine life and you're not partaking in it in the same way that you do in orthodoxy where you're actually part of it so like you said you it's communal reality mm -hmm. is communal we don't believe in pantheism as in everything is god but we believe that everything i don't know if the word is panentheism where everything has some aspect of god given to it there's still mm -hmm. one source right but God goes out into all things. And you've all probably heard this analogy so many times. It's like the sun, the rays of the sun, and you're receiving the warmth of the sun. So you're partaking in some way in the sun's essence. And that's what orthodoxy teaches. Now, I'm not the energy that's, rather than the essence. Yes, essence energy distinctions. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I really like that whole analogy. And to me, honestly, it it's just you always have to come back to, okay, if man is fallen, right, how can man be restored to his original nature? And that's what Theosis teaches you, that you can go back to that original nature, that's communion with God. Evil is not its own thing. Death is not its own thing. They are the absence of these other things. That's, uh, I think, something you, we could elaborate on for days. But are you guys familiar with this? Like Mary and Sky? Yes. I feel like yes. Sky hasn't said anything, but let's start with I, Mary. I wanted to to make a point like you you started differentiating, and I don't think we have time to, to dig deeper in it in difference between Orthodox theology and then you know Roman Western. Catholic theology and more Western yeah. theology. And often Nietzsche, I feel, is like misunderstood because historically where he's coming from is I think a deep-seated feeling of being failed by Catholic theology and being failed by the institution of the church. And I feel like his statement about death of God is a call to, 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 to return to some kind of, he's trying to touch some kind of source. He's trying to touch 
some kind of reality with that. And he finds reality in individualism. Of course, individually that failed him. We know that from his own life. But, uh, you know, we need to put in perspective what was the state of the church in Germany in his lifetime, you know, and it was mm-hmm. really bad. So what, I mean, I don't know that he have all access to Orthodox literature or not. I have no idea, but still he was not, he didn't have a consideration for it in his writing at least. And so like oftentimes, I mean, how this whole climate of moral relativism came to be is that uh, with with the scientific method, you know, that was pioneered in the beginning with Christian people. And I had this conversation with uh with a French uh, gentleman who has happened to be actually a lawyer. And uh, I will come back to topic, don't worry. <laughs> and how scientific method in the West then slowly, slowly started to give that kind of false sense of confidence to the more, te- you know, technically developed individuals, the individuals who, you know, started to have more and more material technology to feel like they don't need church and they don't need God anymore. And that sparked like modern philosophy this kind of desire to empirically justify every decision. For example, when you read Slavoj Žižek or you listen to him talk, I'm using him as an example, he's a socialist. He wants the to, to distribute the will of the majority. And he thinks very arrogantly that himself in his mind with technology can discern what is good for majority of men, you know, for, for society by and large. And therefore, that even those like morally relativistic—I'm sorry, I'm stumbling on words—morally relativistic schools of thought, except for a few uh, that we will not delve into now, actually try and touch and reach some kind of an objective truth or objective good. Even Nietzsche, when he's describing his ideas of societal organization, like in Zarathustra. I don't know, people are often not familiar with that passage because they don't read whole books. But it was very shocking to me to read. He proposes that we organize ourselves in some kind of ethnically isolated tribes. It's actually quite crazy. But he proposes that because he senses that hive as mind, the objective. I think he said, if I remember. Sorry? In an ethnic hive mind. Yeah, that's right. He like some kind of like Slavs there, you know, goes mm. there, this kind of like, some kind of like ethnically pure systems, which completely crazy but he was justifying that as yeah that's empirically that must be objectively the best thing and you know this is just the consequence of people not being humbled by you know faith and not being not having any like spiritual experience of not walking into a church Mm -hmm. and not like being able to to get to that so that's why i want to be as lenient as possible when i talk about modern philosophy i don't want to jump to judgment too fast because often like if you hear maybe hesitance in my voice, I, I want to like for people to realize the difference between, you know, us who have had, you know, been blessed to to experience the church and experience, you know, this, what holiness is. And, you know, the rest of, you know, especially thinkers like Nietzsche who lived a terrible life and then who needed, who resorted to his own kind of logic. And um, still, I don't think that those writings are without any value. Uh, because they can they can pro- be useful tools when one is learning how to write, when one is learning how to think. Of course, no, never taking literally what that person wrote, because you know we know it's not true. But uh, still, I sometimes I feel like on the podcast we are maybe harsh with uh, with Westerners, and I just wanted to point that out. Oh, you got the point. Yeah. But for me, for example, the biggest difference was when I read like 
uh, yeah, let's say Nietzsche again or someone like uh, Bukowski, where when I read them, I felt like very deep nihilistic thoughts because they meet they they made the world seem dark. When you read like more sad parts of their book or like you know more depressive parts in the books but on the other hand when you read Dostoevsky who also dealt with a lot of chaos that he saw and he wrote about you didn't saw the world as dark but those events and you could when you read further you can see there is a solution to that there is a better way to that and how we can overcome these things even in sad moments Dostoevsky can try to make you some hope for the characters that was my yeah, biggest uh, takeaway Mary I think you were going to say something earlier do you want to elaborate on that uh, oh um, it was more of like a side note thing from something mentioned way earlier is um is what I find interesting about like um, ancient philosophers is that they always had this slight idea of God. Like they had like some idea, like Plato and Aristotle, they paved the way to uh, orthodoxy coming to Greece, you know, with the logos, especially. Mm -hmm. There's, they, mm -hmm. they had the idea of the logos, like God planted that seed in them. And we even have like a sort of icon, like they don't have halos or anything because they didn't, they weren't, you know, the Jews, but they still had something. So um, on my office, we have the image of them. And there's a story of Plato where uh, Saint Anastasios had um, had been actually slandering Plato and like putting him down and all that. But then he had a vision where Plato appeared to him and Plato said, like, I was a sinner. I don't deny that, but I was one of the first to know Christ. When he came down to Hades, mm -hmm. so, and that's why, like, it's incredible how, just, the original Greek, for the Bible is like in the beginning was the logos, mm -hmm. and the logos, was with God, and the logos was God, and the same with uh, China. There's a book called, uh, the Christ the Eternal Tao, I believe, and it, and um, I haven't personally read it, but I've had. I've had someone who who've read it told tell me that um, there was the idea of a Tao, which was the Chinese version of the word uh, mm -hmm. way back when. And of course, they didn't have it completely 100% right, but they still had something. And and then when um, and when Christianity came, it it corrected it, and and we have the translation for the Chinese is a. Uh, the in the beginning was the Tao, and the Tao was with God, and the Tao was God, stuff like that. I, I find it really interesting how some like like you pointed out so that they had something. Some like sometimes philosophers get super close to like like get drawn back to like a Christian idea, but don't quite have the full like a perspective. Yes. The like the full mm. picture. Yes, exactly. So like well. you said that there was a philosopher who had a basic idea of the fall like he started coming to the but didn't have full understanding like god gives us these little seeds but we have to you know 
you know, find that out for ourselves by finding the church. Right. Yes. Exactly. Seeking the truth. God will provide um, as Saint Cyril says, I think this has resonated with me quite a bit. Not everything that a heretic says is heretical. So what why that's important is because people always discredit someone's argument like before they've even spoken, just based off whatever worldview they hold, which is a very dumb thing to do because I know for myself that I don't know everything. I could be arguing with this person and then it turns out that's actually my own theology or that's actually what I'm supposed to believe or that's the truth. And because I'm mm -hmm. not well-versed enough on the topic, I've just discredited them based off who they are as a person and ad hominem them in my head. Uh, so that's something I think, like Mary was saying, people outside the church can get pretty damn close to a truth anyways without actually getting the entirety of it. Um, and Sky, I was going to ask you, Sky, you've been silent the entire podcast, so now's your chance to tell us what you think. What I think. What on, do you think of this? On the whole thing regarding philosophy and theology? Anything you have to say. Any <laughs> Anything in your head based on this. Anything topic. that I have to say. I mean... What's maybe your favorite ice cream? That Twitch stream. My favorite ice yeah. cream, uh, vanilla. <laughs> uh, vanilla is the best ice cream, uh, hands down. And that is not vanilla? a that is not a subjective reality. That is very ob the objective <laughs> reality. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I I think um, I mean I recognize the fact that we definitely things need to work hand in hand, and I I can't remember the saint that said it. But it was on um, pagan philosophy and stuff. And um, a saint basically, it was one of the saints, he said, um, yes, there is some truth in these things, but to like, but like, but you have discernment now. So take the truth out of it, discard the rest, essentially. And I forget, mm -hmm. I don't know which saint it was. Maybe uh, Trey knows. But he basically, uh, essentially, it boils down to, yes, there are some truth in things that happened before to pave ways to set up uh to to pave ways for christianity and all of that to expand yep. into certain areas into into certain people's mindsets um but in the same way it, in in the same way it was paved for the jews through the the forerunner the forerunner john saint john the forerunner or the baptist in the west um, which he wasn't a Baptist, sad to say. Um, anyways, outside of the that, denomination, yeah, non-denominational Baptist. He actually had a mega church. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, there, there's a reason you guys kept on saying in the beginning there was the logos. That was actually just a Greek translation, but they were speaking King James English in the. Ba <laughs> I guess we all have to become Baptists. <laughs> no, but um, basically, in in the same way that that was paved for the Jews and all that, and he was the forerunner to get the people ready in the same way that these in a sense these those who were pagan in their life that lived way before christ mm -hmm. kind of paved the way with their ideas through uh by the grace of god to help uh to help their populations accept christ later so it's kind of like little seeds it's like little seeds planted all along the way and boom next thing you know now you have a great fruitful field so yeah that's that's my take uh I, I wanted I, oh, to just very shortly, I promise this will be a short one. 
often philosophy exploration of thought can lead to technology of thought, ways of thought, like systems of thinking. And I feel like those can be very useful if we discard maybe the secular implications of them. Like, for example, the Greeks may brought a lot of very useful technology of thought I feel like I, I use in my you know, day-to-day -day thought experiments. And just as the Enlightenment thinkers of France brought us a lot of, you know, but they had a Christian background, some of them, but not not all were not devout believers. And so... Uh, Sorry about that. No problem. No and so, like, for example, <laughs> stuff like the encyclopedia, I don't feel like that's... Uh, necessarily a bad thing or something that we should reject i feel like those technological examples are good and as i said last podcast uh, you know the church adapted pagan technology and uh, it did it well with the blessing you know and uh, i feel like that's that's what we should do i feel like i say this like every podcast but what really brought me to faith recently was reading soren kierkegaard who is definitely not orthodox i think he was of some protestant uh, belief mm -hmm. but uh, he makes a moral argument for belief which i love i use it all the time i use it when people ask me close to me why do i believe and how do i view like faith and stuff and i get that from a guy who is not orthodox and now if he was to start mm -hmm. if i discovered some of his writings that are against orthodoxy of course i would discard that but uh, you know what i've read from his work that that moral argument that as people, we need to make that leap of faith and we owe to ourselves to believe in God. That really resonated with me and I recommend to most Orthodox people to read, uh, you know, his works. So, And just what, this... one thing on Kierkegaard, can I say one thing on Kierkegaard just because yeah, I think it's relevant to this is that I mentioned Hegel as sort of the perfect example of sort of a philosophical 666 or a philosophical Tower of Babel trying to have a philosophical theory of everything. Um, Kierkegaard was immediately after Hegel and was Hegel's big, biggest critic. So he was trying to say Hegel um, with this philosophy is just um, um, it, like it, it's incomplete and there is that necessity of the leap of faith. So yeah, I agree. Kierkegaard is really um, is is really um, good on good on that. Um, yeah, definitely. I also wanted to mention that it was uh, Saint Basil that made the comment on uh, pagan philosophy. And he said that um, he basically stated the Christian's goal to essentially achieve like theosis and all that. And he said, uh, and therefore should glean whatever good can be found in pagan literature and reject what it, whatever is, is not like whatever's not mm -hmm. there and good. So yep, it was same basic. There you go. Um, could I, could I just talk about the Greeks um, briefly just because um like everyone was talking about them and um there's uh it's really true that i do think they did pave the way for christ um um and uh like what just in terms of philosophy like socrates was martyred the reason why not martyred sorry he was killed he was killed um executed for um the reason why like his um the um the, the court or whatever, the reason they gave was that he was slandering the gods of Athens, right? And Socrates, in according to Plato in his dialogue, Socrates taught, did have a sort of monotheism. The one thing is that with Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, what they didn't get is that God was personal. For them, it was the highest principle, right? But they would critique, um, they would critique, um, and the pagans and stuff like the idea that evil is um privation like evil isn't real that comes from plato um like in the critiques of sort of the vulgar platon uh sorry um uh, uh paganism that you get with the greeks that was 
critiqued by uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And I, th I don't think it's a coincidence that so many of the early um, church fathers, one example being uh, St. Justin Martyr, they were um, Hel Hellenic philosophers. St. Paul debated with the Hellenic philosophers. Uh, I have no doubt that he, um, he was really well read on these philosophers. Um, Dionysius the Areopagite, I know people, uh, I tend to lean towards the belief that they're, they're authentic writings by the guy himself, but um, he was um, lived in, I believe, believe like the center of, of philosophy. And that's why that kind of explains why he was so um, well-read on philosophy. If you, if you take my crazy view that they were authentic writings. Um, but last thing I'll say is that um, I, 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 I don't know if you guys know Seraphim Hamilton. He's my favorite Orthodox yeah. YouTuber good friend and he's well known for his crazy typology crazy typology and um he'll talk he talks about just mentioned in a video that there's an odd link between aristotle who i do think prefigured christ like so many of the church fathers um uh, paved the way for christ um so many of the church fathers uh depended on aristotle um and um uh, there's a strange connection between aristotle and joseph who sort of paved the way for the mosaic covenant um um uh, Joseph was the right-hand man to the most powerful king in the world, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Aristotle was the right-hand man to the most powerful king in the world at that time, Alexander the Great. So I, I started looking into this more and I made a video and I realized, I discovered these weird um, coincidences between the three main philosophers who sort of prepared the Greeks for Christ and the three main patriarchs that prepared the, the Hebrews for Moses um, and the re revelation of God at Sinai. Um, so the three patriarchs would be um, Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. And then um, the three philosophers are Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And there are so many overlaps, like um, Abraham and Socrates were both men who wandered around uh, collecting, uh, accumulating followers and stuff. Jacob um, and Plato, Plato isn't actually his real name. According to the, the legend that was passed down, um, uh, Plato... Um, received his nickname Plato, which means like, uh, I think broad, it means like big, broad, broad, broad. He received that name from his wrestling coach. Um, so he he was given that name change by his wrestling coach. And Jacob obviously wrestled with God and then received a new name from God, um, Israel. And um, and then there's a link between Joseph and Aristotle. And that's that they were both counselors to the most powerful man in the world. Um, so like you can believe that or not believe that these are like real, like, I guess, God in put the made this structured providentially structured history to work in this symbolic uh typological way where you have these patterns i i find it convincing but um i think <laughs> that was just sort of like a, a random tangent that on an old video i did but yeah like there's no doubt that the um greeks um the the greek philosophers paved the way for christ like before socrates there was wasn't even that sort of intelligentsia in the greeks who believed in the like a sort of monotheism that evil was privation there was like th these were like very vulgar t pagan type peoples that i don't think would have been um as open to the gospel as they were after socrates and i don't think it's a coincidence that socrates was killed for blaspheming against the pagan gods i think uh i completely agree with you on that note and what you have to we mentioned these greek philosophers a lot and they have some truth there. There's people outside of orthodoxy that have got a truth. But the reason why we emphasize orthodoxy is because we believe we have the fullness of the truth. 
That's all. Then when they have the truth, there's only one truth. These guys, when they're correct, are not at odds with the truth. We have the fullness of it. And there's nothing wrong with entertaining an idea, uh, even a, like a heretical idea. There's nothing wrong with entertaining it and thinking, okay, what if these premises follow and they go this way? If it's true, it's not true. If it's true, then it's true. It's actually a sign of maturity when you can entertain something that you disagree with and just suppose for a moment that you are the other person, entertain logic through their lens and way of seeing the world and come to a sound conclusion based off the evidence presented to you. That's a sign of maturity. I, as an orthodox, can talk with someone that I might fundamentally disagree with, um, but I'm very happy to just think, you know, let's just pretend that their arguments are this, this, and that. And if it does not follow, that's it. Now, I think the way we're going to end this is I'm going to get everyone to tell me who their favorite philosopher is. And then I'm going to ask you, Trey, to tell me what is your what recommended book you'd have in philosophy. One recommended book and any last notes. So I think we'll start with with Sky and I'll work down. Sky, what's your favorite philosopher? <laughs> Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> I mean, all right. Mary, who's yours? Um, I haven't actually read all that many philosophers at all. So um can't really say it, but I'd say maybe Aristotle, because you know, he helped. He, I mean, a lot of the fathers relied on him in his philosophies and stuff. Yeah, lots of so. Augustine stuff comes from Aristotle. Let's go yeah. with you, uh, Milos. Uh, I wouldn't call Dostoevsky a full philosopher, but I would like to take him. Stranger. You know, it's really hard to pick only one person. And as a, as a proud Serbian and as an Orthodox Christian, I must say the American viewers need to read Petar Petrovich Njegos. He's, uh, I will, we can spell it in the video description. I, I'm dyslexic, I don't know how to spell it in English. But Petar Petrovich Njegos, he was a Serbian Orthodox priest and uh, more, more than just a basic priest. I don't know how you say that rank in English, but and a very faithful, devout Christian and also a very brilliant thinker. And his, his very famous work, Crown of the Mountain, not, not necessarily a philosophical work, but he has many deep thoughts that are really good, interesting. And his second book, The Light of the Microcosm, absolutely great read for our American viewers. So I will go with him and I will recommend him in true Serbian spirit. Uh, Trey. Um, I would say this might be cheating because he is a bit of a theologian as well, and he's orthodox. But mine would be Pavel Florensky. Um, uh, he was uh, he was martyred by the Soviets, and he wrote this book that currently in my Discord server we're doing a book club um, a reading of going through his book Pillar and Ground of the Truth. This book uh, really did change my life. I think Florensky is. Um, brilliant there's certain things he gets wrong he was kind of into the sophiology stuff not as much as bulgakov but um yeah it would be um it would be pillar uh pavel florensky and then that would be my recommended book too it would be pillar and ground of the truth go read that book you can find a free pdf online um it's it's difficult 
but um, I think it's essential for anyone trying to discern the relationship between philosophy and theology, because the first chapter of that book is showing how philosophy or rationality is limited and the necessity. He literally will like almost as like a spiritual slash philosophical analysis of pure rationality and shows how it literally leads to hell. It leads to the hell of un complete, utter skepticism and uncertainty. And then in this hell, then you have that moment where you can have you have the choice to remain there or to open yourself up to to humble yourself for rationality to humble itself and realize i can't contain all of reality in itself and this is what leads to him to for the rest of the book uh to have these brilliant theological insights and he's thoroughly orthodox in my view so um yeah it would be pavel florensky and his book uh pillar and ground of the truth that would be my uh recommendation oh awesome well, uh, my favorite one is probably uh, Diogenes. That's a joke. My favorite one is, uh, what's his name? Uh, so I think St. Gregory the Theologian, Theologian is my favorite. I don't, that does not count because he's, also, he's the theologian. Then yeah, I, I would have said St. Maximus. If we could have done it, I would have said St. Maximus. Yeah, yeah same. <laughs> I, I, my favorite one, I just resonate with St. Gregory the Theologian, but doesn't count because he's a theologian, then I would say uh, probably Dostoevsky is going to be blunt, if he counts as a philosopher. But I think he does. He delves enough into that aspect that it's he's a philosopher. Is there any last notes that you wanted to kind of just put out there, Trey? Um, maybe really briefly, I'll just say that um, if you're orthodox, um, like I have encountered, cer encountered certain people, they tend to be big fans of uh, David Bentley Hart, who um, reject polymism and polymism. They reject the essence energy distinction. They reject the idea that philosophy is limited. And um, but I will just say, as an Orthodox Christian, this debate has been settled. I think this is a good way to conclude the podcast on the relationship between philosophy and theology. This debate was settled between Barlam and Palamas. Um, yes. Barlam was um, a hyper-rationalist who would say things as crazy as the philosophers have greater knowledge of God than the Old Testament prophets because they had this rational idea of God as actus purus, and therefore they're closer to God than the prophets who literally saw the uncreated light. This was rejected by the church. Barlam was condemned, Palamas was uh, vindicated, and his theology is the theology of the Orthodox Church. And part of his theology is, this is, was the main contention. It was between whether philosophy is um, sufficient for salvation, sufficient to know God, because that's what salvation is. And we reject that because God is not a formula. God isn't something you can know rationally, um, at least not extensive, like in his fullness. God is a person. And this is the basis of our entire theology. God is a person, and the only way you can know um, God as a person, the only way you can know the true nature of reality is through faith in this person and cultivating a personal relationship with him. Yeah, so for those that don't know, the council in which this was settled is a pan-Orthodox council, so you have to accept that it. it's our theology. Mm -hmm. So there's no Palamism in orthodoxy. Palamism what you call Palamism, teachings of St. Gregory Palamas are our theology. It's not you pick yep. or choose. Um, I think I see... heard uh, Father Spirit don't speak about that on YouTube as well, in more depth. Uh, all right, well, that's a video that you guys can check out. But um, 
Yeah, that's settled. And I think it's funny that that guy ran off, Balan ran off and became a Roman Catholic when he lost mm-hmm. the debate. Yeah. <laughs> that's just something to think about. But otherwise, you find this kind of Palamite essence energy distinction in the Cappadocian fathers, have it from the wall back there. Um, St. Basil, it's not hard to find. That's our theology. That's settled. And I think it's a good note. Uh, I want to say a big thank you, Trey, for coming out and joining us for the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, wish to no have you again. Thank you. It was a wonderful experience, and we could maybe go more in depth on a specific subject. I was kind of glazing over things pretty fast, but uh, yeah. Well, sure. That, that's an idea for next season. And I want to say <laughs> on behalf of the Orthodox squad, Trey, and everyone, all of us, thank you for joining us, viewers. And really, we appreciate every time you guys watch. Thank you so much. See you next time. <laughs> Oh